All right. Well, as you guys know, our end goal, our chief goal here at Cross Training is to better equip you to make disciples of Jesus. But sometimes, like probably tonight, you will have um, a night where you just have to sit back and kind of of take it all in because this is as i mentioned earlier this is a hard teaching and so hopefully um hopefully you find yourself with a few more answers tonight uh, to some questions that maybe you didn't even know you had but this will prompt a few you see uh remember the context of the book of hebrews as we're talking about chapter 12 tonight is that throughout chapter 11 uh, in this persecuted group of believers the author is reminding them of the Old Testament saints and their faith. And now we see then in chapter 12, him connecting that to the church. And so he's saying, chapter 11, awesome, great, lots of heartache, lots of struggles going on in the Old Testament with these old heroes. You're going to have the same thing. You're going to have the same struggles. Let's do this. And he's going to remind them about Christ tonight. But in that, uh, we're going to find out that God is a disciplinarian. As you know, the series is called uh, Jesus Is, and so we have Jesus Is a Disciplinarian. We see tonight, though, in this passage, the Father. Jesus said uh, in John that he and the Father are one. If you've seen one, you've seen the other. And so um, Jesus is, the Father is a disciplinarian. And so we're going to walk through this as we see uh, those Old Testament saints' faith become our faith. Their struggles are going to become our struggles. And so this might mess up your theology a little bit, uh, hopefully in a good way, if at all. Um, this, I, I don't think that most of us, and I could be wrong, I don't think that most of us struggle with the fact that God is a disciplinarian of the ones he loves, of his children. I think what we're going to struggle with is the mode in which he often chooses to do so. And so what happens is tonight, uh, as we walk through this, you're going to have to come face to face with a couple things. Number one, God's sovereignty. Number two, whether you truly care about God's glory more than anything else. That's the chief purpose and goal of all of mankind in their, our lives, is to bring God glory, to give back what is his, to magnify who he is on earth. And that comes without conditions. And so the passage actually shows God as a disciplinarian ushering his church into pain. This is, this is important. He's actually ushering them into pain. And, and so God's sovereignty, we see even uh, all over scripture, but even in, in Exodus chapter 4 verse 11, when Moses is, uh, he's saying, to God, I can't go speak to the people because my speech is not eloquent. And God responds to him by saying, who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? I'm going to read that to you again. Who made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? So we all know in the sinful, broken world that we're all flawed, that there's issues, and we, we know that God's good and he, he loves us and he's got grace and mercy, but like we have to come to terms with the fact that he is sovereign over all of it. That he made the beautiful baby who can't see. And why did he make him so he can't see? He, he like, he, he, 
didn't just allow this stuff. In some cases, he says, if not all cases, he says, I am going to cause this. And this is going to be hard. This is going to be hard. Now, there's hope in it because even in Exodus there, Moses finds hope that God, knowing that Moses can't speak very well, God still chooses him and he knows a greater plan, even in the midst of Moses' insecurities. You see, this is not tonight, this is not a passage saying that bad things happen to people and God comes in at the end and kind of rescues or redeems it and uses it for discipline. Okay, this is the difference between a surgeon and an ER doctor. An ER doctor sees cuts and pains and bruises and says, let me try to repair it. Let me try to make the most of the situation. God is not sitting in a corner scared of what the enemy is going to do. God is sovereign over all of this, and he causes the cut. The surgeon says, I see healing in your future. I see redemption. I see you being made whole, and I'm going to cut you to get there. And God cuts us. Discipline defined is actually punishment for the sake of conforming to the image of Christ. So there's a goal that we're going to conform to the image of Christ. But we're going to take a little bit of a beating getting there. And that's why some people, they they don't like the book of Hebrews. Because it's all about perseverance and endurance through hard times. But for those in life who have struggled and have faced tragedy and hardship and and trials, there is a great comfort and freedom in the book of Hebrews because you get some answers to things that you've been wondering in the darkest of nights. And so for you, as we walk through this, for all of us, knowing that there is a little bit of a mystery in God's uh, providence, his sovereignty, his causing of things to discipline us so that we might conform to the image of Christ, the question that I want you to ask yourself as we walk through this is whether you will accept the mystery of God's providence and the pain in your life and be trained by it. So I can't answer everything tonight. I'm going to go to my grave not knowing some of these things. But will you accept the mystery of God's providence saying, I'm going to cause some stuff to happen, and will you allow yourself to be trained by it? So, let's jump on in. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 through 11 is what we'll capture uh, tonight from the Word. Verses 3 and 4 say, Consider... Him. So just like a, a therefore, which pulls us back to the previous passage, consider him, pulls us back, pulls all of this together to talk about Jesus. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility. This is going to be crucial, from sinners such hostility. You, we're going to park on that later. Against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. So the, these two verses, the author is, is saying that we need to consider Jesus and what happened on the cross and, and that we ourselves have not, this being the Hebrew people, have not experienced 
persecution, pain to the point of shedding blood. So what we're going to talk about for a second is the pain that they're obviously facing. You see, it's natural for us to lose heart. It wouldn't be a whole bunch. uh, All throughout Scripture, we see God telling us not to lose heart, to not be afraid, to not fear. Like, he wouldn't say, do not fear, over and over and over if we didn't already fear a little bit, right? And so it's natural for us to lose heart. That's why the author uh, of Hebrews is writing this letter, because he knows they're persecuted, they've faced some junk, and they're starting to feel like they're losing some heart. If you remember back a couple chapters, it talked about how some of these Hebrews were imprisoned. He was reminding them of their faith in that time. They were imprisoned, that their property was seized, that they were made uh, essentially fools of in the public court, like for the sake of Christ. That's crucial because we're not just talking about any kind of pain tonight. We're talking about pain caused by God and us, the church, because of our faith. So not just bad stuff happening, even though we'll, we'll talk for a little bit on that. But persecution because of our faith, God leading us into it. And so the author of Hebrews knows that's what's happening, and he's telling them, you got pain, but don't lose heart. Consider Jesus. I remember, and I've shared this story before, for whatever reason, tonight God brought several stories that I, I had shared recently, um, but brought them back to mind. And so I've, I've shared bits and pieces of this one. But I remember when Tara and I got married, we were pumped uh, because she loved Jesus and I loved Jesus, even though she was a little unsure because I was a newbie in the faith. I was like a year in and she's like, she even asked me, are you going to still follow Jesus a few years into, me, into this? And I was like, yeah, I think so. I think, I think so. Uh, it's turned out well so far. And, um, and I remember we were both excited because we, we saw years and years of ministry together. And... She didn't know, and I didn't know if I could preach or if God had given me any kind of ability to teach, but uh, probably a year into marriage, as we were living in Salina, and we were helping to plant Crosspoint Salina, we were meeting on Saturday nights, and so we had Sundays open, and I had some opportunities to go preach in a couple places. One was a tiny little Baptist church in Clay Center, Kansas, and that's up where my old stomping grounds are, so I I had kind of a heart for that area, and I thought that'd be great, but there was like six, seven people I preached there many weeks in a row, and I think by the end there was like 14, so they had doubled in size. But it was just a tiny little place, four pews. That's the whole church, there's four pews, uh, and and just not many people. And so I hadn't preached, and public speaking can be scary if you haven't done it before. Even if you have done it, it's scary. And, and so not having a lot of experience, but preaching, I remember being crazy anxious, just sick. I would take so many over-the-counter uh, medications just to get up there, some prescriptions just to ease the anxiety, and I knew it was not doing my body any good um, in the long run, but I, I just did it to get up there. And I remember one Sunday in particular, I was preaching Philippians chapter 4 about not being anxious, right? And so I'm preaching this, this great thing on not being anxious, but I'm crazy anxious, so I take a bunch of medicine, and I could tell, um, I could tell that my, my body was starting to wear down. This is <laughs> we're laughing, but pretty soon you guys are going to find out this is not a funny story. It's kind of sad. And now I feel, I feel sympathetic for myself, actually. That's rare. Um, so uh, I took all this medicine, and I get up there, and I preach, and I could tell something wasn't quite right. 
um, I had had indigestion, like heartburn, and I had had issues in my chest before. But by the time we got home and ate lunch, and then we started uh, taking that afternoon cat nap on Sunday afternoon, I remember I woke up in the middle of the nap, and I could tell something was wrong, like something in my chest was just wrong. It was full of fluid. I could feel something, almost like a trickle. It just wasn't right, and it was painful. I got up, and I ran to the bathroom, and I just puked up a whole bunch of blood. My stomach was just full of blood. And uh, Tara, being a nurse, she scooped out that blood and, and puke and mess from the toilet. And we uh, went to the hospital, if you, in case you're wondering why, so that she could give them a sample so they could test and find out what in the world is wrong with me, in case you're just thinking that was for fun. Um, and I remember through all of that, and they found that I had tears in my esophagus and all that, and I've struggled with that since and will for the rest of my life. But uh, I remember through all that, I was thinking to myself, I picture preaching and stuff for a long time. And if I can't get up in front of more than 10 people without puking up blood, is this worth it? Like I'm just getting started. And it looks like what I had to put my body through to do this, I don't know if it's worth it. You question, you lose heart. I think it happens to all of us. And so no matter what you're facing, whatever your trial, your tribulation is, you, you could ask why all day long, but the author simply says, consider him, consider Jesus, consider what he went through. That if he, if God does not spare his son, but his son has to experience all of this, like all of what the cross is, why is he going to spare us who follow in his footsteps? I think it's easy for us to, uh, to tend to overreact to pain and suffering. You know, it's always the generation after you, right? Like, it doesn't matter what generation it is. For me, I'm on the edge of millennials, so I look at the other millennials, and I'm just like, you guys are wimpy, you can't handle anything, you're always complaining. But, like, the generation above me looks at me and says, you're so wimpy, you're always complaining, you can't handle anything. It just happens because it's hard to be sympathetic when, when, when you feel like you had to go through some battles and won some wars, and now the people behind you, you look at them, and either you're super sympathetic towards them or you're just like, come on, if I can make it through, you can make it through, right? There's always that generation, I know, you know, the whole, oh, it's snowing an inch out. Should we have cross training? Well, I walked uphill both ways, 10 miles through 10 inches. Like, there's somebody somewhere saying that, right? It just happens. Because we always tend to blow our pain out of proportion. And as I've become a minister uh, and I see people with pain, I have had gospel-centered advice from not only, of course, the scripture, but just those who have walked before me and how to handle this. And, and so when people have pain, it's good to affirm their pain. Often that helps you um, to make sure you're not um, demeaning their pain. Whatever their pain is, regardless if you think it's valid or not, it is valid. It's painful for them right now. It doesn't matter if it's a seventh grade girl who just broke up with her boyfriend and she's bawling, or uh, someone who has 10 kids and they're working 10 jobs and they got cancer. Like pain is pain. And so to be kind and gentle and to walk through and be sympathetic and compassionate and loving, like this is all good stuff and we need to do this when it comes to pain. But the author doesn't just go that route. He takes a different route. He takes, uh, he, he takes the route of, you know what? I'm going to give you a beautiful gift, the beautiful gift of perspective. And sometimes that's the most beautiful gift. you can Now, if you're only giving people that perspective, 
of you don't have night you don't know how bad you got it you don't know how good you got it you don't know how bad he had it like if that's all you do then you you probably need to work on compassion and all that stuff but the author <laughs> he, he gives them that beautiful gift he takes that different approach and says you know what the best thing right now for y'all isn't for me to just comfort you and to say this is going to end one day don't worry it's all going to end no i'm going to tell you about jesus and he went through an incredible amount of pain isn't it wonderful that no matter what you and i can go through whatever we've been through whatever we are going through whatever we will go through like <laughs> there is nothing that's going to supersede the pain Jesus went through. And if we're following in his footsteps, we know that not only did he go through this so that we don't have to grow weary or faint-hearted knowing if the Father helped him through it to the end that the Father wanted, the Father's going to help us. Like the Father's going to do what he wants to get us through it. He's going to empower us with the Spirit to whatever the end result is. God's got us. And so this is supposed to be encouragement. This is encouragement that he endured and that the outcome was awesome. Wasn't so awesome for him. It was awesome for us. Let's throw out a theological question and see if we can't make our brains spin just a little bit. What do we do with this? Consider him, Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility. From evil men, from nasty, horrible people, from evil. Okay? We talk about all the evil we see in America. And like these men took the God of the universe and they killed him. Pretty soon, throughout the rest of this passage, the author is going to say, you, church. Consider Jesus and what he went through. God's going to let you go through similar stuff. When I said this might mess up your theology earlier, this is what I'm talking about. It's not that God disciplines. We can get that, I think. It's that he used evil people for his purposes. Now, it's not as if this isn't anywhere in Scripture, but what we do, I think, as the church is we pigeonhole it. We're like, yeah, that's crazy. God had people kill Jesus, and Jesus in the garden was like, no, God, if, if this isn't your will, please take this cup from me. And God said, this is my will. And we see that Jesus did this, but we don't then translate that to, hey, God might use evil in the world to discipline me as a believer. Like, no, 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 no. God used evil people to kill Jesus for my good, and it's great. Now I'm a Christian, wonderful. We don't translate that God would then use evil to discipline us but all through scripture you see god sovereign over evil spirits god sovereign over evil stuff it says way back in exodus remember the 10 plagues and all that stuff and it says over and over and over and over that god made pharaoh's heart hard not the world not bad experiences not evil stuff god made it hard and then you see in romans 9 paul's like yeah he did that for his glory which is kind of a sad story you, you see uh, someone like King Saul. Oh boy, he was trying to follow God, but he made a couple mistakes. And God gave him, God took his Holy Spirit from Saul, and then he gave it to David. And then he says to Saul, like, I'm going to give you an, uh, an evil spirit to torment you. Until David plays this little musical instrument, get a little bit of relief. Like, you can just get past that. This is, God did that. So, theologically, 
Let's ask this question. If God can use and chooses to, not can or allow, chooses to let the church be disciplined by evil people who are hostile and hate us. They will be held accountable for it. They, they will be guilty of it. All that, that, that doesn't take away from that. But God chose to use them. Does he use tragedies to discipline us? Does he use cancer to discipline us? Does he use hurricanes to kill a bunch of people? Tsunamis? Does God use when you and I make big mistakes as believers, like, we in, like sinful, crazy stuff, there's consequences, does God cause those things for the sake of us becoming more in the image of Christ and conforming? Now here's where I can't give you every answer. But I will say this. I don't see how saying yes to those would be as hard as it is to say yes to this. Like if you see in scripture that God takes his children, the ones he loves, his own son, and then all of us adopted into the family of God and says, I will let evil come and pound you. I'm going to cut you with it so that I can repair you and make you whole, and, and I'm going to get glory from it. If the answer to that is yes, then I don't know. Now, I'm just speaking logically. I don't know why it would be so far-fetched to think that he can't discipline us through everything else, because he is sovereign in everything else. I think if you can say yes to this, and it's obvious we have to, not as crazy to think he could use those other things. I'm not going to sit here and, and tell you that I know for sure until I see it mapped out in scripture, but I don't think it's out of the question. This is fun, isn't it? The biggest chunk here, verses 5 through 8. And have you forgotten the exhortation, that's encouragement, that addresses you as sons? Now here's a quote from the Old Testament. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by it. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. All right. So here's the second thing. Welcome to the family. Discipline, it comes with the territory. So the author is saying that the readers, they've forgotten a little bit. Like, have you, Okay, you're caught up because you know what happens? Hard times and persecution blind us to God's future purpose and plan. Like it just, we get, we get nearsighted. And he's saying, don't forget. Don't, don't become blind to God's overall purposes here. And so we see this quote here, this to there, verse 5, 
or part of it, all the way down uh, through the end of 6, actually comes from Proverbs. It's a quote from Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11 and 12. And, and so the encouragement here is that the discipline that God, that the Father gives us, comes from love. So the author's making the case that divine discipline comes from divine love. And it's marked, what we're going to see here, it's marked by education. It's marked by uh, the end result being that you and I have the ability uh, to make choices, to make better choices in the gospel. It's, it's our sanctification, it's our growth, it's, again, conforming to the image of Christ. Now let's walk through that and kind of see where, where we find some of that. There's a key word here where it says uh, from that Proverbs quote, it says, uh, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. So don't brush it off, don't pretend like it's not there, don't uh, not talk about it because it's hard to talk about. No, don't regard it lightly. This is important. And don't you, don't you waste pain. <laughs> no, there's nothing worse than wasting some pain. And then he says, nor be weary when reproved of. So this, this word reproved, it, it, it means rebuked. It's padea in, in the Greek. And what it means is uh, in, in, for the Hebrew and their tradition of learning and growing and being disciplined, it's a verbal rebuke. Okay, And, and then for the Greeks in the Greek educational system and in their, uh, in their way of thinking for their culture, it always led to you learning something from it. So there's kind of two parts to it. It's a verbal rebuke, and, and then there's growth. You're gonna, like, you're going to grow from this. And so when we see that word, what it's saying is, don't be weary when reproved. We don't have to sit back and expect that things are going to happen, circumstances are going to happen, and that God's never going to tell us that he's disciplining us. Matter of fact, when you're praying to God, if you don't ever find him tell you, like just a, a, a rebuke in your prayer life, like, hey, this ain't right, then something's wrong. I know when I pray, I hear God affirm his love for me, his grace, his mercy, all of these beautiful things. But sometimes I hear him just grab me and say, Ryan, don't be dumb. Like if you, if you don't have that kind of rebuke, and if you don't understand that this will always lead to uh, us learning and understanding how to walk in Christ more, um, then, then we're not fully understanding the purpose of discipline. But then from there it goes on and says the Lord disciplines. And, and, and discipline, like in, in the Greek, like just straight, pure definition, punishment. Punishment. And some would say, no, you know what, Pat, don't go there because I know because of the cross and the resurrection 2,000 years ago, we don't have to take punishment. Wrong. Wrong. There's a punishment taken by Jesus, a punishment for the consequences of our sin that leads to condemnation and utter separation from God. There's a punishment that leads to training and godliness. That's what we get. So Jesus did take the punishment. He took the one that, if we had to choose, which one do you take? Like He took the one we want him to take. But it doesn't mean that we don't get punished. And then, if, that, if you're like, eh, I don't know, God doesn't seem like he's going to be too hard on us. It says, chastises. You want to know, you want to know, like, direct, as translation, severely disciplined. So it goes from 
He's going to reprove it. There's going to be a verbal rebuke sometimes, and then he's going he's gonna dis- to punish you. And then he's like, I still don't believe he's, he could do anything mean. And then chastises, severely punish, and it says <laughs> whipped. Whipped. To be chastised is to be whipped. And then down here it says, if you are left, now all these verse, verse 7 and 8 talks about, like discipline is what we have to endure. So that's what we got to work with. But it's because God is treating us as part of the family. So we're part of the family here. And if you are left without discipline in which all have participated, this word participated right here. The word participated is metakoi, and it actually just means sharers of it. So everyone who's in the church, everyone who's in the family, gets to share in the same thing. This is a right for being part of the family. We think of Jesus as Lord, of Savior, like these are all true and correct, but he's son, and we adopted, because of the gospel, into the family of God, share as sons and daughters exactly what he got to experience. I've joked about this story for a long time, and I'm guessing um, because it seems to come up about 10 times a year, I've probably shared it with you, but when when I first became part of the Baldwin family, I became part of their traditions, and, and so um, for the sake of brevity, I'll share it just a little bit quicker than I might otherwise, but when uh, Tara and I got married our first Christmas, um, we went over to the Baldwins and Logan and Shauna, got the whole family together, and we uh, did the family tradition thing, which I didn't know about until that day, um, at least as I remember, and it was to go around and look at Christmas lights, and so this is something the family had done. Well, in the past year, Logan came into the family, I came into the family, so we went from uh, mom and dad and two daughters to mom, dad, two daughters, and now two sons, and so we're all crammed into this vehicle, and, and cram can be used... In my opinion, we were crammed. For anyone else, it'd be like, it was pretty comfortable. Um, but we jump in, and I'm because I'm a little bit of a control freak, I don't want to be, I don't want to not drive, like I, and I don't like riding in the same car with people. Like, like when I think of going on a mission trip, I think of not showering, going through all kinds of pain, running through the jungles, like all that stuff. That's all great, you know, wonderful stuff to me. The ride down there would be the torment. Like being around people that close for that long would be, torment and so they don't know this about me though and, and so we jump in the vehicle together we go we get our coffee at the gas station everyone's like "Ooh, jingle bells it's christmas eve wonderful let's go look at christmas lights we go from one place to the next 10 minutes 20 minutes 30 minutes 40 minutes we're not seeing many lights i get car sick i get car sick i mean I, this is my first christmas with the family last christmas they didn't even know i existed this christmas i'm married to their daughter and we're doing this together i'm in the very back seat everyone else up front, I'm throwing out little comments about, hey, maybe, you know, we had enough, whatever. I take my clothes off. Like, I'm starting to take my clothes off. I'm unbuttoning my shirt, take it off. I've got, like, an old, like, nasty shirt underneath, but I'm sweating like a dog. I'm about to throw up. I'm, I'm sick, and I'm getting close, um, but I don't have a voice yet in the family because I'm the newbie, right? And it was, needless to say, not a fun experience. And we joke about it uh, ever since then, because I ruined Christmas and we haven't done that since. No, we don't do Christmas lights anymore. Um, it's all ruined. And, and so we joke about that, though, in all fun. But the truth is, as bad as that seemed to me, 
I wouldn't have got to do that if I wasn't part of the family. Like in the moment, I did not like it, and I was angry. And I joke, but I'm kind of angry when I joke. But those were family rights. Sometimes you're going to experience some pain that doesn't feel good, but you only get to experience it because you're part of the family. And so the fact that we are disciplined by the Father shouldn't make us doubt or question whether God loves us. It's actually affirmation that we get to be part of this thing together. Just like that torment we talk about with the Holy Spirit cleaning house, the old life and the new house. The turmoil sometimes points to the fact that we're saved. It points to the fact that we have a turmoil now we didn't have back in the day. Because it's two lives colliding a little bit. And so let's ask ourselves this question. (laughs) Why in the world in the first place, theologically, why would God even let us go through this junk? Why would he... Why would he have us go through this bad stuff? Like, what's the, even, what's the point of it? Like, okay, we're going to be more like Jesus, great, wonderful, but why? Well, number one, because God gets a lot more glory from people persevering than he does by lip service. He could save us, and we could all say, you know what, I follow Jesus, it's great, it's wonderful. If we never go through trials and tribulations, we're never going to testify to an unbelieving world the presence of God through the trials and tribulations. We can only testify to the presence of God through good times and how he's blessed us, and that's great. But people want to live their own lives. They want to do their own thing. They need to know there's a powerful presence of God through every circumstance in life. God says, I get, I'm, I get more glory when my church is persecuted. The church historically grows like crazy when people come up and say, we want it to end. God said, no, this is when I'm going to blow this thing up. And number two, he lets us go through this stuff because it forces us to actually be the family we were saved and adopted into. I can always tell when there's a disconnect for folks who come in when, when, when they're spiritually uh, immature or they don't know the Lord yet. Um, you, you can always tell a very specific kind of disconnect in the church. And it always revolves around uh, immaturity and our understanding about God's, um, God letting us uh, go through pain and suffering. People don't understand that. Non-believers come in all the time and they don't understand, like, why, why would God even let me go through any of that? And what you'll see a lot of times is that they want answers, but because they don't understand, not only does he let us go through that, but sometimes he even gives us those things to discipline us for our good and his glory. But in that, a lot of times you'll see they're disconnected, they want to know answers, but they don't want much to do with the church. Or they see the church as a place that's going to feed them, or the church is a place that, that is an organization. And yet there's a whole other group of people who as they grow in maturity, they come and they want to be a part. They want to bond together with other believers because they understand, man, God is disciplining me. He's disciplining you. We're going through hard stuff together. But we lock arms, not against God, but with God, knowing we're in this together and we're unified and we got to lean on each other. Spiritual maturity not only helps us understand why some hard times are going to come, but it makes us a family. You can say we're family, but it makes us want to be family. I don't know about you, but when I was a kid and, and we would get spanked and we would be disciplined, with my parents, they had, they, we just called it the stick. It was this old stick that had like duct tape around it. It was a little thin thing. But, but if we ever ticked mom and dad off a lot, they would be like, oh, I'm going to get the stick. And we'd be like, ah! And I'll tell you what, 
we would run all, we had a big house, we would run all through that house and we'd hide together. But we would always, me and my brothers, we would fight each other, we'd throw each other into the walls, we'd just be pounding around on each other. Like we were brothers and we, we just wanted to tick each other off all the time. But once we heard the stick is coming, we were best friends. Why? Because we realized discipline is coming and we're in this together. Maybe if we show that we love each other somehow, they'll decide not to do whatever's going to happen. Didn't work out that way. Normally, it just resulted in one of us looking to see how bad the other one got it. But there was, there was something beautiful about the camaraderie. I don't know. <laughs> it draws families together. It's part of being part of the family. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 9 and 10. It says, besides this, we have had earthly fathers, now we're going to see this earthly father um, illustration, who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good. Next thing we see is that the father disciplines Father disciplines. So the author's saying, okay, y'all, you got, you got daddies. Okay, you got daddies. So let me tell you, you on earth know what it's like to be disciplined. And, and so if you made it through that and you realized one day after college, you look back and said, okay, I think it was good what they did. And then you start doing it for your kids. You realize discipline's good. How much more is it going to be good when the father disciplines you? Like if your dad, who's flawed and jacked up, can get the discipline thing kind of right, how much better is God going to get it? And he does. You see, the Roman nobles back in the day in the first century, they had many, uh, often, they would have many illegitimate children. They would have children with lots of different ladies. And they would support, often, those who were not um, with their wives. The other children, that they were when they were cheating on their, their spouse with someone, those other children, they would help support them financially, but they wouldn't discipline them because they weren't in the home. They only would discipline those whom had the last name, who had the inheritance rights. Because to be illegitimate meant, like, you're not getting the inheritance. Sorry this happened to you. I'll support you financially, but I'm only going to discipline the ones who I'm going to be with for a long, long time. I'm only going to discipline those who get the inheritance. And in some cases, they actually had a, a, a discipline system in the Roman world that was as strict as slavery. And they were hard on their kids for the sake of discipline. I think there's an inherent understanding in every earthly family, the need for discipline. If you have children at all, you understand you got to discipline them. Like, I love my little boy, but there, I don't think there's been a moment of his life that I thought, yeah, he could probably go a few years without discipline. Every single day, all day long, I look at him, and I love him, and my understanding of his need for discipline grows all the time. It's constant. Some of you know, like, it's exhausting. That's why <laughs> Paul says don't exasperate your children, because there is a temptation to exasperate them with discipline. But families know it. It doesn't take much to know it. And everyone can relate to this. But the problem is, even in our generation, you see our culture is jacking up our theology of God because it's jacking up our family structure. So, so many people more than, than in our country 
more and more, it seems like all the time, are growing up without fathers or they're growing up without mothers and fathers who discipline them. It's taboo to talk about spanking, to talk about physical discipline. People don't want to. And the problem is, this illustration of earthly fathers is great, but it falls short because we know earthly fathers are flawed. And their motivations aren't always right. Their intent, their heart, the way they do it is not always right. If you've ever disciplined a child, you know how tempting it can be to discipline them quickly and harshly and for the wrong reasons and motives and sometimes just for your own pleasure because you're ticked off. You don't want to say that, but you know sometimes that's the truth. And so what it does is those experiences, they jade us to discipline. They jade us and they make us think, there's no way that God could be good and love me and save me and then discipline me. There's no way he could punish me because I didn't grow up with that and I'm pretty sure a good God wouldn't do that. Let me ask you, do you have a hard time? Some of you, you got spiritual mothers and fathers, maybe even in this room, people who pour into you spiritually, and you'll take advice as long as it's good for you and as long as you want it. But will you take correction from them? Like, will you take correction from people? Spirit, maybe they're your same age, but they're, they're, they're pouring into you. I'll take some advice, but I don't want any correction. Some of us have a hard time even calling God daddy. Because we've grown up in the church thinking that God is simply a disciplinarian and that's all he is. And he's mean and he's angry and we don't know him as a good father. And when we pray, we don't say daddy. We don't say like Jesus. We don't say Abba, Father. We say God. Because we believe he's just a stern, mean sovereign over things kind of God. There's a huge difference between a beating and a spanking. And this verse, these verses are telling us we don't have to worry or question our Father in heaven and his discipline and his motives and the way he does it and the intents in, with he, in which he does it with. He always gets it right. If you've experienced a lack of discipline, no discipline at all, or jacked up discipline on earth, you don't have to get, and you don't have to expect, you will not get the same flaws in the discipline from our Father in heaven. You can always trust it. You can always trust it. And for some of us, that should bring us some hope tonight. That should bring us some relief. I remember one of the first times uh, I was in the ocean, I went out just a little bit from shore, and I felt just in like a matter of seconds, I felt like I was just, just bobbing around in the water to all of a sudden my legs just started moving quickly. And I thought, gosh, what is going on? I didn't realize it, uh, but I was caught in a little bit of a riptide, and I was, I was scared to death, like just sheer panic came through me, and I thought, oh my, because I just felt like I lost control. I was just bobbing, bobbing, and all of a sudden, boom, I'm just moving. It was pulling me. Then later, I come back into the shore, and I tell Tara, and I tell uh, those around me, they're like, yeah, it's called a riptide. It's horrible to be in. And you fight like crazy when you're in it, because you feel like it's pulling you under. 
and you're unsure how it's going to turn out. But when you get around people who have been through riptides, they give you advice that you need to go with it. And you'll move slowly, and you just kind of go with it, swim with it, but you'll get to safety. But if you fight against it, you're going to wear out quick, and then you don't have any hope. And some of us, the freedom comes in that we know circumstances are happening all the time. And we question, is this punishment? Is this God's discipline? Is this just living in a sinful, broken world? Is it a result of what? What is it? What is it? And we have this kind of fear and this tenseness in our body and our mind thinking, okay, what's going to happen? And what's it for? And all this. And there's a freedom in just knowing God is sovereign. God has a plan. You don't have to psychoanalyze every circumstance all the time to wonder if it's his discipline But it can be used for discipline, and you can just breathe knowing that if he is disciplining you, it will be perfect. And it comes from a good father, but you know the key to discipline? The key to discipline is having a disciple on the other end. If you fight against it and you're not willing, it will be miserable for you. A whole bunch of my encounters with my little boy is him fighting against what we're trying to do but sometimes he looks at us and he'll say no no touch this and we'll say yeah no touch we'll say well flip your finger buddy don't do it we'll flip your finger and he just obeys like sometimes it happens that way and it's much smoother and everyone enjoys it much more there's a freedom in trusting God Last but not least, oh, I just killed it. You know you're preaching a long time when it freezes up. Let me just read it for you here. The very last verse, Romans 12, verse 11, says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So the very last thing we see is that the children see the fruit. So 30,000 foot view, there's pain and it's used for discipline. Then (laughs) pain because we're in the family and we suffer what Jesus suffered. And then the father and his discipline. And then we see the children see the fruit. We see the fruit. So the author says, I get it, I know it, it hurts, it's not fun. This isn't fun talking about, but there is fruit. The fruit is that we're going to be, again, growing in holiness. So let me ask you right now, knowing that if you're in the church, you have and are and will be disciplined by the Father, a loving, good Father with good intentions and a good plan and a good purpose. Doesn't mean the discipline's fun, but are you wasting it? And the way you know is, are you growing in holiness? This isn't a question to be prideful and to say, boy, I think I'm just getting so much better at life, but you know when you're growing. Some of us, we're so tired of fighting some of the same battles and the same sin struggles, but we do, if we got honest with ourselves, we see progress. We see ourselves responding differently and reacting differently, and we're seeing that some of the consequences we've experienced are honing us to conform us to this image. And there's two aspects that we see of the fruit that's going to come, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. There's going to be a peace that comes, and there's going to be a righteousness. The peace comes because we're not fighting against God. We're not fighting against fear. That we understand his discipline and we just enjoy the freedom of knowing it's going to work out 
As long as I have my eyes set on the Savior and his plan, it's going to be okay. I don't have to freak out. I don't have to scream. And no matter what's happening, it's going to be all right. God can use this. And, and the righteousness, it comes because the end goal, again, is holiness. God is molding you. The fruit is that God is not through with you, and he's changing you. And it's beautiful. Guys, the reason that this whole discipline thing is hard for us to grasp is because we got a perfect God with a perfect plan, a perfect Savior, doing a hard work in his church, whose track record is we got a sin nature and we live in a sinful, broken place. There's going to be some tension. There's going to be some pain. In order to get from a mess to something beautiful, it's going to be messy and beautiful. Does that make sense? If you're in a mess and you're going to become beautiful, it's going to be both messy and beautiful. So if you and I embrace, listen, if you and I embrace discipline, it has to come with the contextual, the foundation that you and I are more excited and more sold out and living for God's glory more than our own. You've got to have this. You've got to be okay at the end of tonight with God's sovereignty and God's glory as the chief goal for every human being's life. Because if it's not, then I'm telling you what, every act of discipline, every act of discipline will always feel like punishment for the consequences of sin, not for the purpose of holiness and being trained in righteousness. And Jesus took the one punishment and saves us into the family so that we share in his sufferings, united in Christ, and get the other punishment. But its end goal is beautiful. And it's good. So I don't know what you're facing tonight. I don't know what you've gone through. What circumstances are hard. But I can tell you. That maybe God caused that. But if you're a willing disciple living for his glory. Then Romans 8, 28 will be true. It is true. But it will be true for you. That for those of you who love him. He will work all things together for the good. You can waste the pain. You can question what's discipline and what's not. Or you can simply freely trust in his sovereignty and make your chief aim your growth in Christ. And there's going to be a peace and a comfort that comes in that that's beautiful. This takes spiritual maturity. If you, if you, if you don't, if you're not growing, this is going to be a hard one to take. Let's pray.